It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Kulao the Leper is a short story from Jack London's collection of stories from Hawaii called The House of Pride, which was first published in 1912. Jack London had traveled to Hawaii three times, and it became a prominent setting in his literature. He was fascinated by Hawaiian landscape, history, and culture, and Hawaii's particular melting pot situation with colliding race and class issues. The white colonization of the islands also created a class struggle between the wealthy white traders, industrialists, and missionaries, and the disenfranchised natives which formed their workforce. In addition to his obsession with race and class issues, for whatever reason, London was fascinated by leprosy. The disease was present among the Hawaiian population during London's time. Infected persons were confined to the leper colony on Molokai, which London once visited. In Kulau the Leper, which has been hailed as the best story in the book, the story takes place in the secluded Kalalau Valley on the island of Kuai, where the brave and defiant Kulau leads a band of lepers in rebellion against the police and army bent on capturing them and shipping them off to Molokai. This story contains profoundly moving moments as the characters are threatened with lifelong confinement or death. In London's skillful hands, these life-and-death struggles are rendered as extremely gripping and poignant scenes. And now, Kulau the Leper by Jack London. Because we are sick, they take away our liberty. We have obeyed the law, we have done no wrong, and yet they would put us in prison. Molokai is a prison, that you know. Niuli there, his sister was sent to Molokai seven years ago. He has not seen her since, nor will he ever see her. She must stay there until she dies. This is not her will. It is not Niuli's will. It is the will of the white men who rule the land. And who are these white men? We know. We have it from our fathers and our fathers' fathers. They come like lambs, speaking softly. Well might they speak softly, for we were many and strong, and all the islands were ours. As I say... They spoke softly. They were of two kinds. The one kind asked our permission, our gracious permission, to preach to us the word of God. The other kind asked our permission, our gracious permission, to trade with us. That was the beginning. Today, all the islands are theirs. All the land, all the cattle, everything is theirs. They that preach the word of God and they that preach the word of rum have foregathered and become great chiefs. They live like kings in houses of many rooms, with multitudes of servants to take care for them. 
They who had nothing have everything. And if you or I or any Kanaka be hungry, they sneer and say, Well, why don't you work? There are plantations. Kulao paused. He raised one hand and with gnarled and twisted fingers lifted up the blazing wreath of hibiscus that crowned his black hair. The moonlight bathed the scene in silver. It was a night of peace, though those who sat about him and listened had all the seeming of battle wrecks. Their faces were leonine. Here a space yawned in a face where there should have been a nose, and there an arm stump showed where a hand had rotted off. There were men and women beyond the pale, the thirty of them, for upon them had been placed the mark of the beast. They sat flower-garlanded in the perfumed, luminous night, and their lips made uncouth noises, and their throats rasped approval of Kulao's speech. They were creatures who once had been men and women, but they were men and women no longer. They were monsters, in face and form grotesque caricatures of everything human. They were hideously maimed and distorted, and had the seeming of creatures that had been racked in millenniums of hell. Their hands, when they possessed them, were like harpy claws. Their faces were the misfits and slips, crushed and bruised by some mad god at play in the machinery of life. Here and there were features which the mad god had smeared half away, and one woman wept scalding tears from twin pits of horror, where her eyes had once been. Some were in pain and groaned from their chests. Others coughed, making sounds like the tearing of tissue. Two were idiots, more like huge apes marred in the making, until even an ape were an angel. They mowed and gibbered in the moonlight, under crowns of drooping golden blossoms. One whose bloated earlobe flapped like a fan upon his shoulder, caught up a gorgeous flower of orange and scarlet, and with it decorated the monstrous ear that flip-flapped with his every movement. And over these things Kulao was king, and this was his kingdom, a flower-throttled gorge with beetling cliffs and crags, from which floated the bleedings of wild goats. On three sides the grim walls rose, festooned in fantastic draperies of tropic vegetation, and pierced by cave entrances, the rocky lairs of Kulao's subjects. On the fourth side the earth fell away into a tremendous abyss, and far below could be seen the summits of lesser peaks and crags, at whose bases foamed and rumbled the Pacific surge. In fine weather, a boat could land on the rocky beach flat that marked the entrance of Kalalo Valley. But the weather must be very fine, and a cool-headed mountaineer might climb from the beach to the head of Kalalu Valley, to this pocket among the peaks where Kulao ruled. But such a mountaineer must be very cool of head, and he must know the wild goat trails as well. The marvel was that the mass of human wreckage that constituted Kulao's people should have been able to drag its helpless misery over the giddy goat trails to this inaccessible spot. Brothers, Kulao began, but one of the mowing ape-like travesties emitted a wild shriek of madness, and Kulao waited while the shrill cachination was tossed back and forth among the rocky walls and echoed distantly through the pulseless night. Brothers, is it not strange? Ours was the land, and behold, the land is not ours. What did these preachers of the word of God and the word of rum give us for the land? Have you received one dollar, as much as one dollar, any of you, for the land? Yet it is theirs, and in return they tell us we can go to work on the land, their land, 
and that what we produce by our toil shall be theirs. Yet in the old days we did not have to work. Also, when we are sick, they take away our freedom. Who brought the sickness, Kulau? demanded Kilo Liana, a lean and wiry man with a face so like a laughing fawn's that one might expect to see the cloven hoofs underneath him. They were cloven, it was true, but the cleavages were great ulcers and livid putrefactions. Yet this was Kiloliana, the most daring climber of them all, the man who knew every goat trail and who had led Kulau and his wretched followers into the recesses of Kalalau. Aye, well questioned, Kulau answered. "'because we could not work the miles of sugar-cane "'where once our horses pastured. "'They brought the Chinese slaves from overseas, "'and with them came the Chinese sickness, "'that which we suffer from "'and because of which they would imprison us on Molokai. "'We were born on Kuai. "'We have been to the other islands, "'some here and some there, "'to Oahu, to Maui, to Hawaii, to Honolulu. "'Yet always did we come back to Kuai. "'Why did we come back?' There must be a reason. Because we love Kuai. We were born here. Here we have lived. And here we shall die unless, unless, there be weak hearts among us. Such we do not want. They are fit for Molokai. And if there be such, let them not remain. Tomorrow the soldiers land on the shore. Let the weak hearts go down to them. They will be sent swiftly to Molokai. As for us, we shall stay and fight. But know that we will not die. We have rifles. You know the narrow trails where men must creep, one by one. I alone, Kulau, who was once a cowboy on Niihau, can hold a trail against a thousand men. Here is Kapeli, who was once a judge over men and a man with honor, but who is now a hunted rat like you and me. Hear him. He is wise. Kapeli arose. Once he had been a judge. He had gone to college at Punahau. He had sat at meat with lords and chiefs and high representatives of alien powers who protected the interests of traders and missionaries. Such had been Kapalei. But now, as Kulau had said, he was a hunted rat, a creature outside the law, sunk so deep in the mire of human horror that he was above the law as well as beneath it. His face was featureless, save for gaping orifices and for the lidless eyes that burned under hairless brows. Let us not make trouble, he began. We ask to be left alone. But if they do not leave us alone, then is the trouble theirs and the penalty. My fingers are gone, as you see. He held up his stumps of hands that all might see. Yet I have the joint of one thumb left, and it can pull a trigger as firmly as it did its lost neighbor in the old days. We love Kuai. Let us live here or die here, but do not let us go to the prison of Molokai. The sickness is not ours. We have not sinned. The men who preached the word of God and the word of rum brought the sickness with the coolie slaves who worked the stolen land. I have been a judge. I know the law and the justice. And I say to you, it is unjust to steal a man's land, to make that man sick with the Chinese sickness, and then to put that man in prison for life. Life is short, and the days are filled with pain, said Kulau. Let us drink and dance, and be happy as we can. From one of the rocky lairs, calabashes were produced and passed round, 
the calabashes were filled with the fierce distillation of the root of the tie plant, and as the liquid fire coursed through them and mounted to their brains, they forgot that they had once been men and women, for they were men and women once more. The woman who wept scalding tears from open eye pits was indeed a woman apulsed with life as she plucked the strings of a ukulele and lifted her voice in a barbaric love call such as might as come from the dark forest depths of the primeval world. The air tingled with her cry, softly imperious and seductive. Upon a mat, timing his rhythm to the woman's song, Kiloliana danced. It was unmistakable. Love danced in all his movements, and next, dancing with him on the mat, was a woman whose heavy hips and generous breast gave the lie to her diseased, corroded face. It was a dance of the living dead, for in their disintegrating bodies life still loved and longed. Ever the woman whose sightless eyes ran scalding tears chanted her love cry. Ever the dancers of love danced in the warm night, and ever the calabashes went round, till in all their brains were maggots crawling of memory and desire. And with the woman on the mat danced a slender maid whose face was beautiful and unmarred, but whose twisted arms that rose and fell marked the disease's ravage. And the two idiots, gibbering and mouthing strange noises, danced apart, grotesque, fantastic, travestying love as they themselves had been travestied by life. But the woman's love cry broke midway, the calabashes were lowered, and the dancers ceased, as all gazed into the abyss above the sea, where a rocket flared like a wan phantom to the moonlit air. "'It is the soldiers,' said Kulau. "'Tomorrow there will be fighting. It is well to sleep and be prepared.' The lepers obeyed, crawling away to their lairs in the cliff, until only Kulau remained, sitting motionless in the moonlight, his rifle across his knees, as he gazed far down to the boats landing on the beach. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The far head of Kalalu Valley had been well chosen as a refuge. Except Kiloliana, who knew back trails up the precipitous walls, no man could win to the gorge save by advancing across a knife-edged ridge. This passage was a hundred yards in length. At best, it was a scant twelve inches wide. On other side yawned the abyss. A slip, and to the right or left, the man would fall to his death. But once across, he would find himself in an earthly paradise. A sea of vegetation laved the landscape, pouring its green billows from wall to wall, dripping from the cliff lips in great vine masses, and flinging a spray of ferns and air plants in to the multitudinous crevices. During the many months of Kulao's rule, he and his followers had fought with this vegetable sea. The choking jungle, with its riot of blossoms, had been driven back from the bananas, oranges and mangoes that grew wild. In little clearings grew the wild arrowroot. On stone terraces filled with soil scrapings were the taro patches and the melons, 
and in every open space where the sunshine penetrated the papaya trees burdened with their golden fruit. Kulau had been driven to this refuge from the lower valley by the beach, and if he were driven from it in turn, he knew of gorges among the jumbled peaks of the interfastnesses where he could lead his subjects and live. And now he lay with his rifle beside him, peering down through a tangled screen of foliage at the soldiers on the beach. He noted that they had large guns with them, from which the sunshine flashed as from mirrors. The knife-edged passage lay directly before him. Crawling upward along the trail that led to it, he could see tiny specks of men. He knew they were not the soldiers, but the police. When they failed, the soldiers would enter the game. He affectionately rubbed a twisted hand along his rifle barrel and made sure that the sights were clean. He had learned to shoot as a wild cattle hunter on Niihau, and on that island his skill as a marksman was unforgotten. As the toiling specks of men grew nearer and larger, he estimated the range, judged the deflection of the wind that swept at right angles across the line of fire, and calculated the chances of overshooting marks that were so far below his level. But he did not shoot. Not until they reached the beginning of the passage did he make his presence known. He did not disclose himself, but spoke from the thicket. "'What do you want?' he demanded. "'We want Kulau, the leper,' answered the man who led the native police, himself a blue-eyed American. "'You must go back,' Kulau said. He knew the man, a deputy sheriff, for it was by him that he had been harried out of Niihau, across Kuai, to Kalalu Valley, and out of the valley to the gorge. "'Who are you?' the sheriff asked. "'I am Kulau, the leper,' was the reply. "'Then come out. We want you. Dead or alive, there's a thousand dollars on your head. You cannot escape.' Kulau laughed aloud in the thicket. "'Come out,' the sheriff commanded but that was answered by silence. He conferred with the police, and Kulau saw that they were preparing to rush him. Kulau, the sheriff called. Kulau, I'm coming across to get you. Then look first and well about you at the sun and sea and sky, for it'll be the last time you behold them. That's all right, Kulau, the sheriff said soothingly. I know you're a dead shot, but you won't shoot me. I've never done you any wrong, Kulau grunted in the thicket. I say, you know, I've never done you any wrong, have I? The sheriff persisted. You do me wrong when you try to put me in prison, was the reply. And you do me wrong when you try for the thousand dollars on my head. If you will live, stay where you are. I've got to come across and get you. I'm sorry, but it is my duty. You will die before you get across. The sheriff was no coward, yet he was undecided. He gazed into the gulf on the other side and ran his eyes along the knife edge that he had to travel. And then he made up his mind. Kulau, he called. But the thicket remained silent. Kulau, don't shoot. I am coming. The sheriff turned, gave some orders to the police, then started on his perilous way. He advanced slowly. It was like walking a tightrope. He had nothing to lean upon but the air. The lava rock crumbled under his feet, and on either side the dislodged fragments pitched downward through the depths. 
the sun blazed upon him, and his face was wet with sweat. Still he advanced, until the halfway point was reached. Stop, Kulau commanded from the thicket. One more step, and I shoot. The sheriff halted, swaying for balance as he stood poised above the void. His face was pale, but his eyes were determined. He licked his dry lips before he spoke. Kulau, you won't shoot me. I know you won't. He started once more. The bullet whirled him half about. On his face was an expression of querulous surprise as he reeled to the fall. He tried to save himself by throwing his body across the knife edge, but at that moment he knew death. The next moment the knife edge was vacant. Then came the rush, five policemen in single file with superb steadiness running along the knife edge. At the same instant the rest of the posse opened fire on the thicket. It was madness. Five times Kulau pulled the trigger so rapidly that his shots constituted a rattle. Changing his position and crouching low under the bullets that were biting and singing through the bushes, he peered out. Four of the police had followed the sheriff. The fifth lay across the knife edge, still alive. On the further side, no longer firing, were the surviving police. On the naked rock, there was no hope for them. Before they could clamber down, Kulau could have picked off the last man. But he did not fire, and after a conference, one of them took off a white undershirt and waved it as a flag. Followed by another, he advanced along the knife edge to their wounded comrade. Kulau gave no sign, but watched them slowly withdraw and become specks as they descended into the lower valley. Two hours later, from another thicket, Kulau watched a body of police trying to make the ascent from the opposite side of the valley. He saw the wild goats flee before them as they climbed higher and higher, until he doubted his judgment and sent for Kiloliana, who crawled in beside him. "'No, there is no way,' said Kiloliana. "'The goats?' Kulau questioned. "'They come over from the next valley, but they cannot pass to this. There is no way. Those men are not wiser than goats.' They may fall to their deaths. Let us watch. They are brave men, said Kulau. Let us watch. Side by side they lay among the morning glories with the yellow blossoms of the how dropping upon them from overhead, watching the motes of men toil upward till the thing happened and the three of them, slipping, rolling, sliding, dashed over a cliff lip and fell sheer half a thousand feet. Kiloliana chuckled. We will be bothered no more, he said. They have war guns, Kulau made answer. The soldiers have not yet spoken. In the drowsy afternoon, most of the lepers lay in their rock dens asleep. Kulau, his rifle on his knees, fresh cleaned and ready, dozed in the entrance to his own den. The maid with the twisted arms lay below in the thicket and kept watch on the knife-edge passage. Suddenly, Kulau was startled, wide awake, by the sound of an explosion on the beach. The next instant, the atmosphere was incredibly rent asunder. The terrible sound frightened him. It was as if all the gods had caught the envelope of the sky in their hands and were ripping it apart as a woman rips apart a sheet of cotton cloth. But it was such an immense ripping, going swiftly nearer. Kulau glanced up apprehensively, as if expecting to see the thing. Then high up on the cliff overhead, 
The shell burst in a fountain of black smoke. The rock was shattered, the fragments falling to the foot of the cliff. Kulau passed his hand across his sweaty brow. He was terribly shaken. He had had no experience with shell fire, and this was more dreadful than anything he had imagined. One, said Kapahei, suddenly bethinking himself to keep count. A second and third shell flew screaming over the top of the wall, bursting beyond view. Kapahei methodically kept the count. The lepers crowded into the open space before the caves. At first they were frightened, but as the shells continued their flight overhead, the leper folk became reassured and began to admire the spectacle. The two idiots shrieked with delight, prancing wild antics as each air-tormenting shell went by. Kulau began to recover his confidence. No damage was being done. Evidently they could not aim such large missiles at such long range with the precision of a rifle. But a change came over the situation. The shells began to fall short. One burst below in the thicket by the knife edge. Kulau remembered the maid who lay there on watch and ran down to see. The smoke was still rising from the bushes when he crawled in. He was astounded. The branches were splintered and broken. Where the girl had lain was now a hole in the ground. The girl herself was in shattered fragments. The shell had burst right on her. First peering out to make sure no soldiers were attempting the passage, Kulau started back on the run for the caves. All the time the shells were moaning, whining, screaming by, and the valley was rumbling and reverberating with the explosions. As he came in sight of the caves, he saw the two idiots cavorting about, clutching each other's hands with their stumps of fingers. Even as he ran, Kulau saw a spout of black smoke rise from the ground, near to the idiots. They were flung apart bodily by the explosion. One lay motionless, but the other was dragging himself by his hands toward the cave. His legs trailed out helplessly behind him while the blood was pouring from his body. He seemed bathed in blood, and as he crawled he cried like a little dog. The rest of the lepers, with the exception of Kapahei, had fled into the caves. Seventeen, said Kapahei. Eighteen, he added. This last chill had barely entered into one of the caves. The explosion caused the caves to empty, but from the particular cave, no one emerged. Kulau crept in through the pungent, acrid smoke. Four bodies, frightfully mangled, lay about. One of them was the sightless woman whose tears, till now, had never ceased. Outside, Kulau found his people in a panic and already beginning to climb the goat trail that led out of the gorge and on among the jumbled heights and chasms. The wounded idiot, whining feebly and dragging himself along on the ground by his hands, was trying to follow, but at the first pitch of the wall his helplessness overcame him, and he fell back. "'It would be better to kill him,' said Kulau to Kapahei, who still sat in the same place. Twenty-two, Kapahei answered. "'Yes,' It would be a wise thing to kill him. Twenty-three. Twenty-four. The idiot whined sharply when he saw the rifle leveled at him. Kulau hesitated, then lowered the gun. It is a hard thing to do, he said. You are a fool. Twenty-six. Twenty-seven, said Kapahei. Let me show you. He arose with a heavy fragment of rock in his hand, 
approached the wounded thing. As he lifted his arm to strike, a shell burst full upon him, relieving him of the necessity of the act, and at the same time, putting an end to his count. Kulau was alone in the gorge. He watched the last of his people drag their crippled bodies over the brow of the height and disappear. Then he turned and went down to the thicket where the maid had been killed. The shell fire still continued, but he remained, for far below he could see the soldiers climbing up. A shell burst twenty feet away. Flattening himself into the earth, he heard the rush of the fragments above his body. A shower of hobble blasts rained upon him. He lifted his head to peer down the trail and sighed. He was very much afraid. Bullets from rifles would not have worried him, but this shell fire was abominable. Each time a shell shrieked by, he shivered and crouched, but each time he lifted his head again to watch the trail. At last the shells ceased. This, he reasoned, was because the soldiers were drawing near. They crept along the trail in single file, and he tried to count them until he lost track. At any rate, there were a hundred or so of them, all come after Kulau the leper. He felt a fleeting prod of pride. With war guns and rifles, police and soldiers, they came for him, and he was only one man, a crippled wreck of a man at that. They offered a thousand dollars for him, dead or alive. In all his life he'd never possessed that much money. The thought was a bitter one. Kapahei had been right. He, Kulau, had done no wrong. Because the Howleys wanted labor with which to work the stolen land, they had brought in the Chinese coolies, and with them had come the sickness. And now, because he had caught the sickness, he was worth a thousand dollars. But not to himself. It was his worthless carcass, rotten with disease or dead from a bursting shell, that was worth all that money. When the soldiers reached the knife-edged passage, he was prompted to warn them. But his gaze fell upon the body of the murdered maid, and he kept silent. When six adventured on the knife edge, he opened fire. Nor did he cease when the knife edge was bare. He emptied his magazine, reloaded, and emptied it again. He kept on shooting. All his wrongs were blazing in his brain, and he was in a fury of vengeance. All down the goat trail the soldiers were firing, and though they lay flat and sought to shelter themselves, in the shallow inequalities of the surface. They were exposed marks to him. Bullets whistled and thudded about him, and an occasional ricochet sang sharply through the air. One bullet plowed a crease through his scalp, and a second burned across his shoulder blade without breaking the skin. It was a massacre in which one man did the killing. The soldiers began to retreat, helping along their wounded. As Kulau picked them off, he became aware of the smell of burnt meat. He glanced about him at first, and then discovered that it was his own hands. The heat of the rifle was doing it. The leprosy had destroyed most of the nerves in his hands. Though his flesh burned and he smelled it, there was no sensation. He lay in the thicket, smiling, until he remembered the war guns. Without doubt they would open up on him again, and this time upon the very thicket from which he had inflicted the danger. Scarcely had he changed his position to a nook behind a small shoulder of the wall where he had noted that no shells fell, then the bombardment recommenced. He counted the shells. Sixty more were thrown into the gorge before the war guns ceased. The 
tiny area was pitted with their explosions until it seemed impossible that any creature could have survived. So the soldiers thought, for under the burning afternoon sun, they climbed the goat trail again. And again the knife-edged passage was disputed. And again they fell back to the beach. For two days longer, Kulao held the passage, though the soldiers contented themselves with flinging shells into his retreat. Then Pahau, a leper boy, came to the top of the wall at the back of the gorge and shouted down to him that Kiloliana, hunting goats that they might eat, had been killed by a fall and that the women were frightened and knew not what to do. Kulao called the boy down and left him with a spare gun with which to guard the passage. Kulao found his people disheartened. The majority of them were too helpless to forage food for themselves under such forbidding circumstances, and all were starving. He selected two women and a man who were not too far gone with the disease and sent them back to the gorge to bring up food and mats. The rest he cheered and consoled until even the weakest took a hand in building rough shelters for themselves. But those he had dispatched for food did not return, and he started back for the gorge. As he came out on the brow of the wall, half a dozen rifles cracked. A bullet tore through the fleshy part of his shoulder, and his cheek was cut by a sliver of rock where a second bullet smashed against the cliff. In the moment that this happened, and he leaped back, he saw that the gorge was alive with soldiers. His own people had betrayed him. The shellfire had been too terrible, and they had preferred the prison of Molokai. Kulao dropped back and unslung one of his heavy cartridge belts. Lying among the rocks, he allowed the head and shoulders of the first soldier to rise clearly into view before pulling the trigger. Twice this happened, and then after some delay, in place of a head and shoulders, a white flag was thrust above the edge of the wall. What do you want? he demanded. I want you. You are Kulao the leper, came the answer. Kulao forgot where he was forgot everything, as he lay and marveled at the strange persistence of these howlies who would have their will, though the sky fell in. Aye, they would have their will over all men and all things, even though they died in getting it. He could not but admire them, too. What of that will in them that was stronger than life and that bent all things to their bidding? He was convinced of the hopelessness of his struggle. There was no gainsaying that terrible will of the howlies. Though he killed a thousand, yet would they rise like the sands of the sea and come upon him, even more and more. They never knew when they were beaten. That was their fault, and their virtue. It was where his own kind lacked. He could see now how the handful of the preachers of God and the preachers of rum had conquered the land. It was because they didn't know how to give up. Well, what have you got to say? Will you come with me? It was the voice of the invisible man under the white flag. There he was, like any howley, driving straight toward the end, determined. Let us talk, said Kulao. The man's head and shoulders arose, then his whole body. He was a smooth-faced, blue-eyed youngster of twenty-five, slender and natty in his captain's uniform. He advanced until halted, then seated himself a dozen feet away. You are a brave man, said Kulao, wonderingly. I could kill you like a fly. No, you couldn't, was the answer. Why not? Because you are a man, Kulao, though a bad one. I know your story. 
you killed fairly. Kulau grunted, but was secretly pleased. What have you done with my people? He demanded. The boy, the two women, and the man. They gave themselves up as I have now come for you to do. Kulau laughed incredulously. I am a free man, he announced. I have done no wrong. All I ask is to be left alone. I've lived free, and I shall die free. I will never give myself up. Then your people are wiser than you, answered the young captain. Look, they are coming now. Kulau turned and watched the remnant of his band approach. Groaning and sighing a ghastly procession, it dragged its wretchedness past. It was given to Kalau to taste a deeper bitterness, for they hurled imprecations and insults at him as they went by, and the panting hag who brought up the rear halted, and with skinny, harpy claws extended, shaking her snarling death's head from side to side. She laid a curse upon him. One by one, they dropped over the lip edge and surrendered to the hiding soldiers. You can go now, said Kulau to the captain. I will never give myself up. That is my last word. Goodbye. The captain slipped over the cliff to his soldiers. The next moment, and without a flag of truce, he hoisted his hat on his scabbard, and Kulau's bullet tore through it. That afternoon they shelled him out from the beach, and as he retreated into the high, inaccessible pockets beyond, the soldiers followed him. For six weeks they hunted him from pocket to pocket, over the volcanic peaks and along the goat trails. When he hid in the Lantana jungle, they formed lines of beaters, and through Lantana jungle and guava scrub they drove him like a rabbit. But ever he turned and doubled and eluded. There was no cornering him. When pressed too closely, his sure rifle held them back, and they carried their wounded down the goat trails to the beach. There were times when they did the shooting as his brown body showed for a moment through the underbrush. Once, five of them caught him on an exposed goat trail between pockets. They emptied their rifles at him as he limped and climbed along his dizzy way. Afterwards, they found bloodstains and knew that he was wounded. At the end of six weeks, they gave up. The soldiers and police returned to Honolulu, and Kalelau Valley was left to him for his own. "'though headhunters ventured after him from time to time, "'and to their own undoing. Two years later, and for the last time, "'Kulau crawled into a thicket "'and lay down among the Thai leaves and wild ginger blossoms. "'Free he had lived, and free he was dying. "'A slight drizzle of rain began to fall, "'and he drew a ragged blanket "'out of the distorted wreck of his limbs. "'His body was covered with an oilskin coat. "'Across his chest he laid his Mauser rifle.' "'lingering affectionately for a moment "'to wipe the dampness from the barrel. "'The hand with which he wiped "'had no fingers left upon it "'with which to pull the trigger. "'He closed his eyes, "'for, from the weakness in his body "'and the fuzzy turmoil in his brain, "'he knew that his end was near. "'Like a wild animal, "'he had crept into hiding to die. "'Half-conscious, aimless and wandering, "'he lived back in his life "'to his early manhood, a naihau. As his life faded, and the drip of the rain grew dim in his ears, it seemed to him that he was once more in the thick of the horse-breaking, with raw colts rearing and bucking under him, his stirrups tied together beneath. 
or charging madly about the breaking corral and driving the helping cowboys over the rails. The next instant, and with seeming naturalness, he found himself pursuing the wild bulls of the upland pastures, roping them and leading them down to the valleys. Again the sweat and dust of the branding pen stung his eyes and bit his nostrils. All his lusty, whole-bodied youth was his, until the sharp pangs of impending dissolution brought him back. He lifted his monstrous hands and gazed at them in wonder. But how? Why? Why should the wholeness of that wild youth of his change to this? Then he remembered, and once again, and for a moment, it was Kulau the leper. His eyelids fluttered wearily down, and the drip of the rain seized in his ears. A prolonged trembling set up in his body. This, too, ceased. He half lifted his head, but it fell back. Then his eyes opened, and did not close. His last thought was of his mauser, and he pressed it against his chest with his folded, fingerless hands. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Be sure to catch our other shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries, and 1001 Stories for the Road. All our podcasts are found easily by searching 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories, or 1001 Stories for the Road, wherever you enjoy podcasts now. Thanks for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.